All right, let's pray together. God, you are incredible. You are uh, greater, you are stronger, you are awesome in power, you're our healer. You are the one who loves us more deeply and more widely than we could ever ask or imagine. And our hearts are full of gratitude. And we thank you, God, that we could be here tonight to worship you, to be with one another, to learn a little bit more about who you are and who you're calling us to be, God. So we ask that you would continue to, to have your presence be uh, known among us as we, uh, as we continue to worship you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, if you were uh, with us last week, you'll know that we started uh, a summer series. Uh, we're, we're calling it Summer Classics. It's a five-week series. Uh, we know, as far, at least as far as we know, you can check it on Google or whatever search engine you like if you want, that there isn't like an official top 10, you know, famous or favorite Bible verses out there. Uh, but but here at Lakeside, there are some Bible verses that we think are particularly um, important and helpful and, and good for us to kind of have, have in our hearts. Uh, so we've picked five, because we're doing this for five weeks, and we want to highlight those for you over the, over the weeks. Brad started last weekend, and he started with uh, probably, I, I think, maybe one of the most famous Bible passages, certainly a classic, Psalm 23. It's called the Shepherd's Psalm. Some of you were here. You're familiar with it. Uh, Brad uh, just encouraged us as, as we started in this uh, summer series to take what we know and we're learning about who God is. For example, in the 23rd Psalm, that, that God uh, presents himself to us and, and longs for us to understand that he's our shepherd, that, that he protects us and he guides us and, and he directs us. And, and we want to internalize that into our hearts and, and live out of that reality. Tonight, we're going to tackle number two. And number two is out of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, in fact. It's Romans 8, 28. Some of you might be familiar with it. If you're not, let me just, let me just read it for you. Romans 8, 28 says this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28. Summer classic number two. I wonder if any of you have what I have in your lives. I call them love-hate relationships. Anybody have love-hate relationships with things? Uh, yeah, I do. Let me share a few of them with you. Uh, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with exercise. Uh, I, love how, I love how I feel when I'm finished exercising. Like, I feel good. I got the endorphin thing going on. I kind of like to sweat. I feel all, like, super in shape and cool when I'm all sweaty. And I, I, I love how that feels. I hate the idea of having to exercise. Like when I know I'm supposed to be exercising, I, I, I don't like that idea. Because I really, I'd rather like be on the couch and just like kicking back, maybe have a bowl of chips, watch some TV. I, I have figured, you know, I could get like one of those spritzers and I could like spray myself while I was sitting on the couch and then I'd be like sweaty and I could be like, see, I'm good. I'm good. I'm exercising. Chip to the mouth. Chip to the mouth. Chip to the mouth. I I have a love-hate relationship with exercise. I I have a love-hate relationship with technology. I I, I love technology. I'm a gadget fiend, fool, whatever you want to call it. I I got stuff all over the house. I love technology when it works, you know. Um, 
So evidently, I'm a little bit directionally challenged. Okay, no, let me be, let me be honest. That's like a major, it's a major deficit actually in me. I have no, like I have no directional ability. So like it's hard for me to even determine like uh, my left from my right. For example, I just did my left, which is actually my right. So that, that'll help you understand how bad it is. How bad it is. So I love that I can get in my car and my phone. I can put my little thing in, like, oh, I'm going to this place. And it talks to me now. It says, okay, hey, turn to the right, you know, turn to the left. I love that because then I don't have to worry about my directional challenges or my deficits because my phone makes up for it. I hate it when technology doesn't work right. So, you know, uh, I downloaded when it came out the new the Apple Maps. Because I got an iPhone, I landed, well, you know, Apple Maps, not so helpful technologically. I uh, had, some, had some bugs in there. In fact, Apple finally just said, you know what, just download Google Maps on your phone. I just gave up. <laughs> Forget it. Right? I, I, I hated it because I'd be driving somewhere and I'd be feeling all confident, you know. And all of a sudden, I'd say, turn left onto this street. And there would be no street there. <laughs> I'm like, I cannot turn left. I'm going to go through a door of a house. It made me so irritated. Love, hate, relationship with technology. Love-hate relationship with um, getting older. I love that as I'm getting older, I think I might be getting a little bit wiser. Just maybe a little. So I turn 52 next month, and I feel like, okay, you know, I think I could say that I got, you know, a little bit of experience under my belt, and I've learned some things, and I think that maybe I'm a little bit wiser than I was 20 20 years ago. Uh, People who knew me 20 years ago who are here would be like, yeah, no. But I feel as I've gotten older, you know, maybe I have a few things to say that people actually might want to listen to. Yeah, I hate getting older. I hate the older thing. Like, I, I, I hate what, like, my body is doing as I'm getting older. Like, like today, I, I was getting ready to come to church, and I look in the mirror, and I'm like, wow, I'm old. I'm older, man. I got, like, uh, character lines in my face. I think they call those wrinkles, right? Uh, I can't read without my glasses. You guys, you don't have glasses on the night. I'm like, yeah, because the font on my notes is like 50. That's why. <laughs> I don't like getting older so much. I love the San Francisco Giants. I, I grew up in the Bay Area. Followed the Giants all my life. Love, love, love them. I hate it when they lose repeatedly. Even, I even hate it when the, the posing pitcher, like, throws a famous no-hitter. Like, this last week happened with the Cincinnati Reds. I don't care. I hate the Giants when that happens. Hate it. You probably have some love-hate relationships in your life. I'm sure you do. I've got one more i got to confess tonight. I have a love-hate relationship with Romans 8.28. Now, I know, maybe that's scandalous to have somebody up who's preaching going, yeah, I hate a verse in the Bible. Uh, but I have this love-hate relationship with it. I, I love Romans 8.28 because I think it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a, a verse that's assuring. There's assurance in it. It's, it's hopeful. It's, it helps me know that God's, somehow God's got it under control even when everything seems to be spinning out of control. I, I love that about Romans 8.28. I, I don't love um, sometimes how Romans 8.28 is used. So maybe it's not the verse itself I don't love. Maybe it's just how sometimes it's used. So sometimes, you know, in our, um, in our passion, in our effort, in our desire uh, to, to help someone when they're struggling or they're suffering, you know, just heartfelt desire. You, you hear somebody and you go, man, I just, I really want, I just want to fix it. It's just so painful. And you, 
You don't know what to do. Sometimes we, we kind of throw out, like, we just kind of get wooed into Romans eight twenty eight, and we go, you know, well, God works all things together for good. And the person who's looking at us can't really decide whether they're going to actually hit us, be silent, or, or walk away. Because, you know, in that moment for them, that's, just, that's hard. It's painful. Um, so it's kind of like we say to somebody, uh, hey, here's a bandage, even though you have a, a wound that's hemorrhaging. This will help you. So sometimes I don't love the way Romans 8.28 is used. I picked Romans 8.28 out of all the five. I want you to know that uh, nobody gave it to me. Uh, I actually looked at the list when Brad said, hey, you know, would you share a message? And I said, sure. And I said, I'm going to preach on Romans 8.28. I don't know why. I don't know why I did that. I do know why I did that, actually, because God picked it for me. Uh, And you just get to come along for the ride. So lucky you. Last week, Brad talked about Psalm 23, and when he talked about it, he said this, and I I loved how he phrased this. He said, Psalm 23 is a song of faith. It's a song of faith, or it's a text of faith. So if Psalm 23 is a song of faith, I think Romans 8.28 is a song of hope. I think Romans 8.28 is a text of hope, and I want to talk tonight with you about why I think that's true and, and how that operates in our lives uh, today. So Romans 8.28, it's a song of hope. And it's a song of hope, first of all, for the now. It gives us hope for the now. Everybody needs hope in, the, in their lives. And the kind of hope that Romans 8.28 gives us is this. When we have hope in the now, because Romans 8 tells us we are not alone. We are not alone. God is with us, and most particularly in our suffering. Now, uh, one of the things that we do here at Lakeside when we talk about the Bible is we we try and help um, folks understand that the Bible is in context. So you don't just kind of pull a verse out here or there. You know, I call that Bible gerrymandering, where you just take a verse out and you go, I like this verse, I'll use that. And it may not even mean what you want it to mean, but we take it and we kind of crumple it up and and use it the way we want. Well, one of the things we we know about the Bible is you got to look at kind of everything in the package. So you got to look at what's around it, before it, after it, to understand kind of the fullness of it. And this is really true in, in, in Romans chapter 8. So uh, Romans 8, well, really the whole book of Romans, it's just like, it's a huge undertaking. Romans uh, 16 chapters, replete with tons and tons and tons of intense theology. It's probably Paul's magnum opus. It's not the last book he probably wrote, but it's probably his most profound one, I think. And right in the middle of that is Romans 8. Smack dab in the middle, boom. And then about three quarters of the way through the, that chapter, we have verse 28. But before we get to verse 28, there's something I want to highlight for us. Before we get to Romans 8.28, before Paul says all things work together for good, Paul addresses an issue that I think is important for us to understand. He starts back in verse 18, and he tells the church at Rome, and and he's telling us this, "I, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation." The creation, he says, is groaning inwardly. I like like that that Paul highlights this before he goes into all things working together for good. Because you know what? He's talking to a group of people who are struggling and suffering. And they're just like you and me. 
The people in the church in Rome had their struggles and their sufferings, and you and I have our struggles and our sufferings. And so before Paul lays out the red carpet of all things work together for good, he goes, you know what? There is suffering that is going on. And, and the good news about that piece of our lives is that we're not alone in it. Because he continues, verse 26, he says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. See, we're, we're, we're not alone because, because God, God is with us. Uh, we're not alone in our sufferings, particularly because, because God is with us, because God has given us his spirit. And I love how Paul describes it. He says, the spirit groans for us in our, in our we- areas of weaknesses, in our struggles, in our trials and our sufferings. I, I like that because, you know, it gives me an image that's really profound, that that's how invested in this process God is. That when God is with us in our struggles, he's groaning with us, you know? It's not like the Spirit's going, oh gosh, shoot, I don't know what to do. I hope it works out. It's not as though the Spirit's saying, well, you know, just it's all, it all works together for good, so just, you know, keep moving forward. The Spirit groans, feels the pain, is in the middle of it. We don't normally groan unless we feel something profoundly. And Paul tells us, you know what? We're not alone. The hope that we have for the now is that God is with us. I think the way we experience the presence of the Spirit most profoundly is with each other. Now, I know none of us are the Holy Spirit. I get that. But if we're a follower of Jesus, I mean, if we've in fact responded to God's incredible uh, call of love to us, and we said, yes, God, I, I, I want to be a part of a part of your life, I want to live the life of God. If we've responded to that, then God's spirit lives in us. God, God is in us. And so when we're together and we're walking alongside one another in our, in our sufferings, in our afflictions, in our hardships, we are enfleshing God. So I, I, I love coffee and I love Pete's coffee. I like Starbucks too, but, but I really like Pete's. And I love to go to Pete's and hang out with people. Um, my husband calls this my hobby. He's, somebody asked him, what's Libby's hobby? And he goes, Libby's hobby is people. I, I, I like to come alongside people and walk through life with them. And the place I love to do that the most is at Pete's, because, I mean, who wouldn't love that? And I love to sit out on the patio out there and just and hear people's stories and listen and engage. And I love to, as best I'm able, be the presence of God to them as they are to me. And, you know, sometimes when you're sitting there with somebody, it doesn't have to be a pizza, it could be wherever, and you're struggling or they're struggling, and, 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 and you're thinking in your head, I am, I, I, there are no words, I don't have any words. Guess what? You are groaning with words, with words that are wordless. You are the Spirit of God. You are God with one another. This is where we experience it so profoundly. You know, sometimes I think, I wish that I could see God. I wish that I could touch God. Well, guess what? When I am with someone who loves God, I'm experiencing the presence of God. It's not perfect, but God is there. Right across the table, face to face, speaking into my life as I speak into others' lives. This is a profound 
truth that Paul gives us. He says, you know what? We have hope for the now because we're not alone. God is with us because we are together. I want to um, put a little caveat in here about that because I love the, the we are together piece. Um, and this caveat kind of harkens back to why I, I hate Romans 8, 28 or the way it's used. Um, you know, I think sometimes when we're with each other in our pain, it, no, I think all the time when we're with each other in our pain, it's really hard. It's hard to be in pain. It's hard to suffer. It's hard to be with someone who's suffering. It, it, I don't know about you, but Kai, for me, when I'm with somebody who's suffering, I, I, just, I have this longing where I, just, I want to make it right. You know, I want to I fix it. I, I desperately just want to go, okay, well, I think we could do this, this, and this. And then we can fix it. Everything inside of me feels that desire to make it right. And sometimes when we get into that space where it feels almost intolerable because it's so painful, we want to jump in and we want to try and say, no, it'll all work out. Um, and and, and, and we, maybe, we maybe say Romans eight twenty eight. I don't think any of us do that with malice. You know, I don't think anybody's going, hey, I think I'll say a mean thing. Or I think I'll be insensitive. I, I think sometimes it just betrays our own lack of comfort with pain. Because I don't think anybody likes it. I don't, I don't know if you do. I don't. I'm not getting up in the morning going, oh God, bring me a little suffering. It's, pain, it's hard. So sometimes I think, you know, we get in and it feels intolerable. And we say, okay, I just, here, okay, here's a bandage. I know you're hemorrhaging, but this will work. Uh, and you know what happens when that happens? It can, it can make us feel super isolated. Um, we can feel isolated. Sometimes when we throw something like that at a person who's suffering and struggling, it can feel a little demoralizing. I think it, it can um, distance us. Sometimes it even feels a little bit shaming. Uh, non-intentional. But that's reality. And I think I can say that because I've had that done to me. Um, and I've probably done it to somebody else. So for anyone out there I've done that to, I'm sorry. Ahead of, I mean, I just, and if I do it to you, I'm sorry. Say it ahead of time. Cosmically to the world, I'm sorry. Because it doesn't feel good. You know, most of you know that, that I struggle. One of my sufferings in my life, it's a daily suffering. It's an intense suffering. It affects every single part of my life. This is the suffering that I have with my son, Trent, who has severe autism. And sometimes uh, I'll share a story about Trent where some, I might be somewhere speaking or I might be talking to somebody. And, and sometimes somebody will come up to me after. I've kind of bared my soul. I've talked about my suffering. I've talked about places where I feel dark and, you know, where I'm kind of mad. I know I am mad at God and I'm frustrated and I feel faithless and I don't have hope and I'm, I'm in despair. And sometimes somebody will come up to me and go, well, you know, God works things, all things together for good. I believe that's true. I just don't think that's helpful right then. You know? I think what, what, what Paul is telling us in Romans 8 is, you know the way we really, we really help each other? You know the way we really come alongside one another? Is, is we just step into it with each other. We sit in it. We just go, this is ugly and messy and inexplicable and awful, and I'm just going to hold your hand, and I'm just going to tell you I'm sorry. You know, last hour, I, I had a guy come up to me after service and lost his wife of 65 years. I mean, that's his soulmate, right? I, I wasn't going to quote Romans 8.28 to him. <laughs> I, just, I just said, I'm, I'm so sorry. 
broke my heart. You know, that's what we do. We just, we step into that space together. You know, Paul can say this because Paul suffered. He knows. And I think the, the thing that, the model for us that's so important to, to highlight is the model of Jesus. If we look at the life of Jesus, the encounters that, that, that Jesus has with people, he, just, he steps into pain. He just comes into it. I mean, he just walks into it. He's not like, this pain is too messy. I'm going over to this pain. It's a little more simple. He just gets in it with people. This is what's so engaging about Jesus is he steps into our life. He is not away from us. He is with us. I don't think I can think of an example in Jesus' ministry where when someone was acutely suffering, the first thing he did was, quote, scripture to them. Now, he does quote scripture to people, but it's usually the people who are like trying to trick him or kind of have mixed motives. But for the people who are suffering, man, he just comes alongside them and he's with them. Now, yeah, you know, sometimes it does look like he's fixing it. Like, you know, hey, that guy was blind. Now he sees, you know, that looks like fixing to me, you know, couldn't walk. Now they're walking. I, you know what? Sometimes God does do that. Sometimes God does touch our lives in that kind of miraculous way. But most of those stories, geez, there's a backstory. It's a backstory. Somebody's in pain. Somebody's suffering. Jesus gets into it. You know, um, I think my favorite verse in the Bible is John eleven thirty five. 35. It's one verse that I actually have memorized. I'm not super good at memorizing. I'm trying. The Lord is my shepherd. I got that line. I'm about six days late on the rest, but that's okay. I'll get there. Jesus said, in, in John eleven thirty five. One of Jesus' close friends dies. And he comes to the tomb, and, the, and John eleven thirty five says this, Jesus wept, two words. Okay, I mean, if I can do that. I'm just saying. No shame, but... Jesus wept. That's the first thing he did. He wept. He stepped into the pain, and he wept. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to fix we're called the groan. We're called the groan. That's how we experience God with us. So Romans 8, 28, I, th- I think it's a, a song of hope for the now because we're not alone. But I also think it's a, a song of hope for the now because, because it tells us that God is in us and God is restoring and redeeming what's happening in our lives. See, when uh, Paul talks about God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The very, the purpose that Paul's talking about, the purpose is becoming like Jesus. God calls us to become like Jesus. That's God's purpose for us from, be, from eternity. But before we ever knew the name of Jesus, spoke the name of Jesus appropriately, worshiped Jesus, learned about Jesus, God's purpose for all of creation was to know Jesus and become like Jesus. We are called according to God's purpose of becoming like Jesus. So how is becoming like Jesus redemptive and restorative? I mean, how is that hopeful? Uh, Here's how I think it's hopeful and redemptive and restorative, is that when we're becoming like Jesus, we're living the way we were designed to live. We're living the way we were designed to live. We, if, if our life is a big blueprint and design, when we're living 
like Jesus, when we're actually stepping into the life of Jesus in our own selves, we live the way we're designed. And when you live the way you're designed, you thrive. Now, let me be um, clear about something. Living the way we're designed and becoming like Jesus seems to most often happen in hardship. I hate that I just said that. I hate that truth. I hate it. I want to be able to go and becoming like Jesus always happens when things are happy and perfect and great. But I, I, I don't think that's actually true. I mean, it's not that we can't become like Jesus when things are good, because we can. But you know, I'll just tell you from my life experience that the times and the places when I experience God most profoundly and I am changed inwardly in the most transformative way, it is almost always in a place of suffering where I'm desperate and I'm broken and I'm on my knees and I'm groaning. I want to just take a minute and and talk to those of you who are here today who are in that place. Because some of you are here today and you're suffering and you're suffering badly. And things are happening in your life that feel overwhelming and they're sucking you dry. And some of you are here today and you feel like you can't breathe because the suffering is so painful. And it's not probably doesn't feel very good to hear me say, you know, that's, that's God transforming you and, and it's making you more like him. Um, and, you, and you probably can't even hear that today and that's totally fine because I think suffering's exhausting. I think it's exhausting physically. I think it's exhausting emotionally. I think it's exhausting spiritually to keep hanging in there, believing God is with you. And the only reason I think I can stand here tonight and tell you uh, that I believe that's the place where we're most profoundly transformed and become the most like Jesus is because that's a place that I've been in. And that God's pulled me through. I mean, I, I've been in a place of deep, debilitating um, depression. Where I couldn't get out of bed, barely. Um, I have been in a place of rage and anger with God over the fact that I have a son I can't, I can't talk to because he doesn't talk. I don't know what he's thinking. When he cries, I can't help him because I don't know what it is. I, I, I feel so powerless and so frustrated, you know? And I, I mean, I, I've been in those moments where I am on my knees and I have literally groaned, God, there aren't words because I'm crying too hard. And I feel too, too alone and desperate. But I also know that I have come through a lot of those places. Come through them. Now, I'm not saying they're done. Because you know what? Every day I wake up, I still got an autistic kid. Every day. But there are moments in time where that light kind of comes through. It's sort of like the sun coming through clouds, you know? And the beams come down and you go, no, there's light there. There's light there. There's light there. I think I can, I can breathe. I can breathe. And you know, here's the thing. For some of us, those sufferings aren't going to be alleviated in this life. I mean, that's horrible. I get that. But I also get that, you know, um, I look at my life and I see every place where I have become more transformed and where I am living 
more and more out of the way I was designed to live and where I'm actually thriving in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. I go, well, then I guess that's how it is sometimes. And, uh, and I want that. I want to be like Jesus. Because when I live out of that space, it doesn't just change me, it changes everybody else. Now, let me just say something. I want to be clear about this. Um, I don't believe, and I don't think it's biblical, and I think it's poor theology to say that God sends us something to teach us a lesson. Like God's up in heaven going, hey, what, what fastball am I going to throw their way? It's going to make them suffer, and then they're going to be like Jesus. That, that's just not, it's, just, it's, it's not true. God is not in the business of throwing things at us so we can become more holy. Now, here's the deal. There's a weird... Uh, inherent tension that exists in Romans 8.28. I call it the elephant in the middle of the room of Romans 8.28 um, because you've got this, this person saying, I believe suffering transforms us. Absolutely. You've got this person saying, I don't think that God sends it our way to teach us a lesson. And then you've got this person going, there's an elephant in the middle of the room. And you know that what that elephant's got on its back? A big sign saying, why? I cannot talk about Romans 8.28 if I am not willing to talk about that question that we have. Why? I mean, why, why do planes crash on a runway in San Francisco? Why? Why were 29 children killed in Nigeria in a schoolhouse, burned to the ground yesterday? Why? Why are 19 firefighters tragically killed trying to save and restore and redeem the cosmos. Why? 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 Why do you have what you have that you're struggling with? Why do I have what I have? It's a normative question, actually. Um, and it's a question that actually reflects that, that we have the imprint of God on us because you know what? We're not satisfied with things being wrong. We want them to be right. This is why we ask why. Now I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you right now why. I don't know why. Uh, this, is, this is what I do for a living. I, I, I study theology. I teach it. And this is my actually suffering and theology. That's my area of expertise. Um, so you have to get a PhD to be able to say, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't. I know that's not satisfying. It's not satisfying to me. I'm pretty sure, though, if Jesus just dropped down from the roof and said, hey, peace out, Libby, I'm going to talk for a while, and said, hey, let me tell you all why you're suffering, and then went away. I'm not sure that would be satisfying to any of us either, because at the end of the day, we walk out that door, and we walk back into our suffering. But I do know the answer to another question, and it's the answer to the question of how. I don't know why, but I do know how. How am I going to respond to the suffering I have? How, how am I going to let God transform me? And, and how am I going to uh, sit in my own pain and suffering and invite other people into it to, to be God for me? How, how? And how can I then be a wounded healer? How can I step out into the world and say, if God is for us, who can be against us? How? So we have hope for the now. And secondly, we have hope for the future. 
I mean, Romans 8, it's, it's, it's a future passage. It's not just a now passage. I mean, there's a piece of Romans 8 that said, you guys, guess what? It's going to get right. It's going to get right. Romans 8 is completely about God restoring all of creation, not just my life, not just your life, the whole world. There's going to come a moment in time where God makes that all right, where there is no one standing on a stage saying, I don't know, because it will all be right. There's that moment. That moment, however, is not up here in the sky, floating around, waiting for the magic day that it's all going to be made right. That moment is now, because God is using us to unroll his plan of restoration. I mean, this I find this incredibly exciting, um, even in my suffering, to go know that I am a part of a grander picture of God having justice rolled down, having rights established, having the wrong things of the world made right. See, this is what empowers us to do things like say, let's send a team of people to Cambodia where children are sold into sexual slavery. Let's have them go there to help us understand that. Not so we can say, isn't that cool? We went over there to see that pain so that they can come back and they can say, there's sexual slavery over there. And there's slavery here in every house that we live in. It just looks different. And God is in the business of restoring it. And that is our calling, to be those people who work in God's divine project. Wow. For me, that just gives me a whole different look. Doesn't take away my pain, but it holds onto the promise. See, this is what it is. Pain and promise, intention. But God works. Paul, Paul finishes this chapter 8 with this incredible affirmation that all of this stuff, the hope that we have for the now, the hope that we have for the future, is grounded and it's rooted and it's grounded in one thing, and that's God's love. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death nor life, let's say it together, Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love from beginning to end. Love is what couches God working things together for good. That, my friends, is absolutely a classic. God, thank you. Thank you that you are here. You are present. You are with us. You are with us in the deepest, darkest places of our lives, the inexplicable, painful places. You are here. You are with us. You are working in us, and you are restoring your world. And God, we are grateful we get the privilege of being able to roll that carpet out 
and say, look, people, God, look at what God is doing. There is compassion. There is love. There is grace. There is hope. There is a future. Thank you, God.